Hi, I'm David Green, and welcome to episode one of season 22 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. On the show today, I'm talking to Ethan Burris, Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Professor of Management at the University of Texas at Austin, where we'll discuss Ethan's fascinating work on employee voice. Most people, when you have an idea that you you think is great and you would like the organization to change X, Y, or Z, mostly our tendency is to have that idea pop in our head and for it to immediately come out of our mouth. It's my idea, I should vocalize it, and then everyone will see the benefits of what I have to say, and then things will move on, I'll get recognition and rewards and things like that. The problem is, is that this concept of voice is not just dependent on you as the employee. The whole reason why, to me, voice is such an interesting concept is it's about things that employees cannot resolve on their own. Throughout our conversation, Ethan discusses the organizational dynamics surrounding employee voice and leadership. In particular, we discuss what employees need to consider when giving feedback to their managers and selling ideas up the chain of command. We look at how managers can create an environment where their employees feel comfortable giving and receiving feedback. We also talk about what companies need to consider when trying to scale employee listening. And then finally, Ethan shares his thoughts on how HR can add business value as we start to come out of the pandemic. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Ethan Burris, Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Professor of Management at the University of Texas at Austin to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Welcome to the show, Ethan. In the green room, we were just talking that we haven't seen each other for probably three years since we were both at the Wharton People Analytics Conference, so it's really good to see you. Um, can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to, to you and your role at the University of Texas? Sure thing. Uh, so first, thanks for having me, David. Um, lovely to be here. Lovely to see you again. Um, and nice nice to reconnect. Um, so I, I've been here at McCombs for 17 years. So I got here in 2005 um, as an assistant professor, and then I've um, kind of worked my, my way up from there. Um, as an instructor, I, I teach a variety of leadership courses. Um, the The one that um, it's probably most foundational. It's called Leading for Impact. It is a two-year-long leadership development course that spans both years of the MBA program. So I see them in um, during orientation, right at the beginning of their you know student journey within McCombs, all the way up. Uh, I think my last class is about a week before they actually graduate, and so it's a lovely opportunity to kind of see their their development and and um, and their uh, really their career trajectories from there. Um, I also do teach a course on, on people analytics, and we can get into that in a bit, um, but that stemmed from a, uh, a stint as a visiting scholar at Google about seven or eight years ago, uh, working in their, uh, what's called Pi Labs, their people inundation lab, uh, which is a small division within their people analytics group. And uh, so on the outskirts of kind of seeing how the sausage is, is made within, you know, one of the most advanced organizations in this space, uh, I was able to... Um, work with a lot of companies to write some some cases that leverage uh, employment data, um, real but sanitized and anonymized. 
And then uh, that is, is really helpful and informative for our students to get exposure to uh, a, a lot of different aspects of, uh, of people analytics functions. Um, and then from there, a whole you know, variety of other courses, that everything from managing power and politics in organizations to uh, a leadership development course where we take groups of students to Patagonia, Chile on a 10-day backpacking expeditions to learn how they lead in unconventional and dynamic environments. Um, so that's that's kind of the instructor and research and, and teaching hat that I wear. Um, my my research on on tenure track and and research active. Uh, I focus on a concept I call in, employee voice. Uh, what leads employees to speak up in organizations? Um, that is having honest and candid conversations with your boss about things that are working well and things that aren't. Um, how those conversations go, which is not always the smoothest. Um, and so I really kind of then work with both sides of the same coin. So what can employees do to better socialize their ideas? How can you position them for success? And at the same time, I also work with executives and leaders on how they can instill a culture of voice. So what are things they can do to create that sense of both psychological safety, but also feelings that it's a worthwhile endeavor to, uh, for employees to engage in those actions? Um, and then kind of most recently, I've um, taken kind of both of those areas, so both instruction and, and research, and uh, started a, a leadership center, the Center for Leadership and Ethics, where, you know, part of that mission is to create some of these innovative courses and curriculum, but also uh, partner with a number of organizations um, who would like to provide some analytics on some of these fuzzy topics like leadership and voice. Um, so we've um, been lucky enough to uh, work with a number of companies in the space, not only in my area, but um, with a number of other faculty colleagues here at, at UT. Um, and then the last bit is just about, um, let's see, I'm coming up on three months now of starting a senior associate dean. And what that means is all faculty and all programs, MBA, our one-year master's, undergraduate, PhD programs, all, all of those programs roll up to me uh, with, within the business school. So it's kind of been a transition to not only talking about this in the classroom and doing research on it, but now I have an opportunity to actually put it into practice, um, which is a, a lot more challenging than even what I would have thought. Well, that's great. I mean, what a, what a great sort of collection of experiences and, and, and they're all linked to each other. And we're gonna talk quite a lot about the work that you've been doing around employee voice um, today. Before we get into that, love to hear, you know, about how you became interested in, in leadership and the world of work. Yeah, so um, it probably started in, I mean, it started in graduate school. Um, so I was always interested in the intersection of psychology and organizations. Um, and throughout, I say there's there's kind of two stories here. One One's the boring academic one and one's the, the real fun one. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you both. Uh, the boring academic one is I really became fascinated with why organizations make decisions that clearly everyone knows are not good. Um, you know, so this notion of, of politics and that people clearly have a, an inkling of the direction that they should go as an organization, yet for a variety of reasons, we end up doing things that are suboptimal. And so eventually that sort of led me to this, this concept of, of voice. And at the time, there was a lot of uh, of work on the factors that lead people to speak up. So do you, how do you assess if it's a safe and worthwhile activity? Um, uh, so I know you've had Amy Edmondson on before. 
um, she talks about this notion of psychological safety, and that is one of the, these foundations of why people do and, and don't speak up. And really where my dissertation work kind of took off was employees have these assessments and often they are dead wrong. And so understanding the psychology of managers really became the focus of, of, of my work and trying to get inside their heads for how they actually respond when people come to them, not only with ideas for doing things different, but things that actually challenge you. You know, you've been doing things in a particular way. You have policies and routines and all these activities set up. And now one of your team members or someone else in the organization is coming to you and saying, either explicitly or implicitly, you're wrong. And that, that's not always the easiest experience to go through. And so, you know, that, that was sort of the, the academic take. You know, so I read through this stuff and eventually kind of arrived at, at, at these set of questions. The, the other more fun take is um, during graduate school, my, uh, my wife was, was working at the time and experienced all of this in real time. So I'd be reading about this stuff and all of a sudden I would come home and she's like, I can't stand my boss. Um, I have these ideas and I get shot down at work. Um, she had relationships and um, even some coaching and mentorship relationships with folks outside of her department and, you know, came back with lots of ideas and um, make a long story short, uh, during a Friday afternoon, her boss told her that under no circumstances was she allowed to interact with folks outside of her department because that led to lots of ideas about things that needed to change within her group and her boss wasn't really to engage in those efforts. And so, you know, it's never a good sign when you come home on a Friday evening and you're already um, have trepidation about returning to work that following Monday. It ruins your whole weekend. And um, she, uh, she ended up quitting. Again, I was in graduate school. I think my stipend was $11,000 a year. She had no other job lined up, um, was out of work for about six months, uh, took a different role that was about a 25% pay cut, but a wonderful boss. And even to this day, she said she would do it all over again, identically the same. And so, you know, this notion of that, you know, your experience at work really being shaped by, um, by your immediate supervisor, uh, that, that really became kind of the fascination in, in a whole lot of ways, but also, you know, when you talk about the world of work, I, I would hope that most people want to be invested in what they do and bring their ideas. And, and where those two things meet, that's, that's where I've, I've spent a lot of my time these last number of years. Wow. Well, I love the way they're kind of academic and the, the, probably not that fun, actually, for certainly not for your wife at the time, um, kind of reasons came together. And, and obviously, you've done a, a lot of work around, around employee, about employee voice. You, you talk about leadership. I've heard you talk about leadership in terms of the heart and the head. I mean, can you explain what you mean by that and, and what your approach is to developing good leaders, unlike that manager that your wife had the misfortune to, to work for? In, in most of my classes, I, I do end up talking about the heart and head of leadership. And, you know, especially within the classroom, teaching concepts of leadership, I, I would say it's, it's kind of a challenging topic. And that's because I'll, I'll, I'll talk about our, our graduate students, our MBAs. You know, typically they are 29 to 32 years old. They've had seven to 10 years of work experience. Um, and what that means is they're walking into the classroom, like it or not, with some form and thoughts about what leadership is. It's not like 
they're taking a class in molecular biology and have no background in terms of what that content area is. Every one of those students has had a boss, has interacted with many bosses, and have probably been in a leadership position themselves where they've tried to enact their own philosophy or approach for how they would lead. And so we talk very specifically, really on the first day of class, about those philosophies. Everyone has one. You have an approach, an assumption about what it takes to lead, and you look for those attributes in your leaders. You emulate that in your own approach. And these theories, these approaches have consequences because if someone behaves in a way that's inconsistent with what's in your head for an appropriate course of action as a leader, it impacts your relationship and how much you engage in that particular person. That, that's what I mean by the, the heart, is we have these approaches and philosophies, and I spend a lot of time both in the classroom and, of course, with executives talking about and trying to articulate exactly what it means. What are the values you hold dear for you as a leader? The head part is everything people analytics. Because it takes those philosophies and approaches and sees the policies that you create as a result. And the analytics piece is nothing more than a test to see if your approach actually holds water. And so if you have this approach for compensation or approach around um, what it takes to build and, and, and lead a team, and you really believe in that team synergy and this notion that it's important for individuals to contribute to the team as a whole and worry less about their individual performance or contributions, well, that should impact a philosophy around compensation and evaluation. And so now we can put some numbers around that to say, if we change our performance evaluation process or our compensation process to align with your philosophy about successful team leadership and management, does that actually work for your environment? Can, can, we, can we test that statistically? And now we can start to make some policy adjustments from there. And so what I try and do, again, both inside and outside the classroom, is have a heavy balance of both. We need to articulate what our philosophies are and also be prescient enough in order to test that to see if we're right. And you've obviously been applying that both in the academic sense, but you, as you mentioned in your introduction, you've spent you know, a lot of time working with big companies, I, I, you know, Microsoft and Google. I mean, I've seen some of the, the work that you've published around some of the studies you've done at Microsoft, for example, plus your academic work at the university. So I'd be really interested to hear about how you make that link between the detailed academic research studies that you work on and then what this means in the real world? Well, I, I think the simple and short answer is it, it takes a lot of time and developing the relationships with, with those field partners. Um, you know, most, most of those successful partnerships, um, it's taken a couple years to understand their business even before we start data collection. Um, and that's that's not always the norm, but it takes. I, I say that as an example because often just it takes time. It takes time to understand the nuances of the culture, the context, the work that's being done, and then we can start to talk about how some of these underlying dynamics may may show up, and or you know then to design surveys, interventions. We can do some interviews to then start to see what data can. Um, 
that we can assemble to be able to showcase that in, a, in an interesting way and what insights we can learn. And so, you know, I'd say the kind of the first really succinct answer is it, it, it takes time and sort of that, um, that, that approach that the value of research is not just living in the academic world and in our academic journals. Um, we're in an applied field, and so we should be looking to shape policy and practice in some way. And uh, I, I usually go into my partnerships with with that type of ideal in mind. Obviously, Mark, you mentioned Google's one of the most advanced um, companies when it comes to people analytics, which obviously is a shared passion. Microsoft is is is, a, is another. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed again? You don't need to name names here, but have you noticed when you go into organisations that have maybe less maturity in people analytics and, and lesser kind of database approach to people management. Do you notice big differences between those types of companies with, with like the likes of Microsoft and Google, for example? Um, so certainly their sophistication around data and, and is, is, is quite a bit different. And I would say probably the, the first part is the infrastructure around data architecture. So um, how's the data assembled? Where is it housed? How is it accessed? What are the rules in place in terms of privacy and you know, the different departments or managers or leaders that have access, not only to the raw data, but even some of the, the, um, the summaries and tables and reports for, for those data. Um, most of the organizations that are a bit more advanced in this space have put a lot of thought into how those data are assembled and, you know, um, uh, and then ultimately accessed and used. But in terms of like generating insights, I mean, it, once you have the data assembled in some place, then it's just a matter of running those statistics and answering questions that are most relevant for the sponsoring leader, executive, um, et cetera. And so I'd say all the companies that I've worked with, no matter if they're really advanced or not, are really interested in answering questions. Um, you know, certainly over the last two years and where we are now with kind of, you know, knock on wood coming out of this pandemic, what does hybrid return to physical office, what does that look like? And, and how do we manage our people in teams and in relationships and across different parts of the organization that need to be in collaboration together? What's a thoughtful and purposeful way of going about doing that? Every company, no matter if they've have a sophisticated data architecture in place or not is asking those questions. And now it becomes a challenge of, okay, well, if we wanna be thoughtful in answering those questions, what data do we need to assemble? Do we already have it? Or do we need to devise something brand new in order to provide some answers as it relates to, to, to policy refinement and, and recommendations? And those companies that have invested in the create that sophistication capability around people analytics again without making it without having to name names um, are they do, are they equipping their leaders so they can have a much better balance of managing with the heart and the head or you know companies with without the data without, right, then it is all only about gut reaction and, and gut decision making and, and the heart I guess and you you don't you can't use the head because you haven't got the data Yep. Um, so to me, what, what I hear you saying is, what's the feedback loop? So yeah. if you think about the, the people analytics function and what it does, certainly a lot of it is about data collection. Um, 
what are the right questions to ask? What are the right sources of data we can pull together? How do we merge across them so eventually we can start to run some analyses and tell some insights? Then the second piece is, well, what analytics do we actually need to run? What questions are we at trying to answer given the data we have? Once we have those insights, now it comes a question of who's, who's the audience? Is it leaders? So if you're talking about compensation, most lower level managers don't need great swaths of data and reports on compensation policy, but leaders at the top of the organization absolutely do. And so thinking about the right audience for who needs to know these insights in order to make changes within the organization um, is, is, is certainly there. And then lastly, what are, what are the dashboards or feedback mechanisms? So if you're, do you just need a presentation to your senior executive team and that's it? Does this need to live on an online dashboard that's routinely updated given new swaths of data that are coming in? Um, or are you actually constructing reports? You know, you think about the once or twice a year survey. Are you constructing reports for each lower level manager that has at least you know, five or 10 employees underneath? And now they're getting some um, insights about their own team in relation to you know, the averages or the norms across the whole company. And so, you know, going through this, this process is, um, you, you have to, because you have to think about how, how, how are you going to use these insights in a way in order to inform changes in the organization somehow? How are managers changing their behavior or what policies from a higher level do you need to refine in order to, to generate improvements? Makes perfect sense to me. When we come back in just a moment, Ethan will talk through his advice for both employees and managers when it comes to giving and receiving feedback. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Orgview. In a time when disruption and uncertainty are constantly present, Orgview puts businesses on the front foot. As the leading organizational planning and design software platform, Orgview captures the power of data and modeling to build more adaptable, better performing organizations. Orgview gives you control of your organization and, with data evidence, helps you make faster, more confident decisions to get the right people doing the right work at the right cost. This is real-time organizational planning and design for times of change. Orgview is used by the world's largest and best-known enterprises to fearlessly build the organizations they want tomorrow, today. To discover more, visit orgview.com. That's O-R-G-V-U-E dot com. Welcome back to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast with Ethan Burris. Now, let's get back to the conversation. You've been working with a lot of these companies and, and on, in, on the topic of employee voice, we kind of you know, previewed that earlier on. And when you've written about this topic, you've, you've looked at it through the eyes of the employee uh, speaking up, but also from the perspective of the manager, as you, you talked about earlier, receiving feedback. Let's look at each of those in turn and let's start with the employee speaking up. You know, how should employees give feedback to their supervisors, their managers, and, or sell ideas up the chain of command? And what do they need to consider and what's the most effective way to do this? Sure. So I'll give the classic uh, professor answer, which is it depends. And in most of 
uh, the articles I've written and, and certainly when I talk about it in the classroom, uh, we start listing out a whole bunch of different tactics. You can think about, do you want to speak up alone or with a group? Do you want to speak up publicly in a meeting or privately one-on-one -on -one in your office or your boss's office? Do you want to speak up at work or do you want to take your boss out to coffee and get away from the office? And so there's a lot of these tactics that are sort of just dependent on you and you alone, like what feels most comfortable for you. Um, if you get out of the office and kind of the busyness there, if, you're, if this isn't a public display, is that, does that feel safer for you in doing so? Um, are you the type of person that wants to bring a lot of justification for whatever it is you're, you know, what idea you're trying to socialize? So lots of data, lots of reports, lots of evidence for what you're, you're trying to, uh, trying to, to pitch. The most recent article that I wrote, and again, this stems from research that goes back to my dissertation, what I try and argue is for employees to get out of their own heads and to not think about what is most comfortable for them. And I think most people, when you have an idea that you, you think is great and you would like the organization to change X, Y, or Z, mostly our tendency is to have that idea pop in our head and for it to immediately come out of our mouth. It's my idea, I should vocalize it, and then everyone will see the benefits of what I have to say and then things will move on, I'll get recognition and rewards and things like that. The problem is, is that this concept of voice is not just dependent on you as the employee. The whole reason why, to me, voice is such an interesting concept is it's about things that employees cannot resolve on their own. You need to speak up to someone else who has the power and authority to take action and make changes. Usually you start with your direct supervisor, but that can go you know, on up the chain of command, so to speak. And so because there's this dependency, you need to convince someone else to make these changes. Now all of a sudden it's a really interesting dynamic. And you have to think about how your idea is gonna resonate with that manager who's on the receiving end. And so, Going back to those couple examples I noted earlier, if you're going to speak up and bring a team of people with you, you know, this is someone like storming the castle and like saying this idea is great and look how many people agree with me. Imagine being on the receiving end of that tactic. And now all of a sudden you have not just one person, but an overwhelming majority of your team members coming to you and saying this has got to change. Yeah. That can be persuasive in one way, that can also be really threatening in another. And so you could see how managers may not always react in the most positive way, even though that tactic from the employee seems like it's a great idea. So I'll, I'll give uh, another example, uh, just in terms of language and how you pitch ideas. If you think about to the last idea that you had, is this something you're gonna pitch as something that's brand new it's a shiny new object, and if only we take action, this is something that's going to be lovely for the organization to do and accomplish. You can also take that same nugget of an idea and pitch it very differently. If we don't take action on this now, here's all the impending harm that will come to our organization. Uh, I'll give a very quick example of a decision point that we're facing right now as a business school. Um, historically, we've spent most of our um, 
time, attention, and resources around in-person degree programs. So if you're going to come for an MBA, you come to Austin, Texas, on our campus, spend time in our buildings for two years, and then graduate. Well, you know, these last two years, we've operated in an online and hybrid format. Should we offer an online or hybrid type of degree program? Well, we can take that idea and pitch it as, well, if only we did this, here's all the great things that could happen. Serve new students, different revenue sources for the school, et cetera, et cetera. We can also take that same idea and say, our competitors are already moving in this space. And if we don't join them, we're going to be left behind. That, that's, if we don't take action, here's all the harm. So I want you to think through and just recognize what is your natural tendency? What was the last time you pitched an idea? What did you do? Same idea, you have those two different choices. And some of the surprising findings that we um, came out of this was most people end up mixing those two frames together. Here's the bad stuff we're doing now. Here's something new that we can do different. And when you mix those frames together, those ideas are supported the least because they are not as effective in resonating with your, your target audience, your one manager. So you want to pick one dominant frame, either the new opportunity or the threat. And the question is, which one? There's a, a personality factor called regulatory focus. And in short, it's a concept around, are you a person who plays to win or plays not to lose? Are you a person who jumps in headfirst and figures out the details later? Are you a person that's very cautious, want to line up everything first before acting? Are you a person who the worst mistake is an action that's not taken? Or the worst mistake is acting and having it be wrong? So you can kind of see where I'm going with this. Depending on which personality your boss is, that should determine which framing of the idea you should use. And we, we find that it's anywhere between a 10 and 30% um, delta in the amount of endorsement and support a manager provides if that framing matches their personality. And so this is what I mean about employees getting out of their own head. Like I have my tendency. I'm, I'm a bit more what's called promotion focused. I'm the play to win. I love the new shiny objects and new ideas. But if I'm gonna take this and sell this up the chain of command to someone else, I need to think about how it's going to, how that message is going to resonate with them. So um, most of what is written in that, that last article kind of goes through a number of different tactics about getting out of your head and into your managers. And depending, as you said, sometimes you might have to take it up several layers. You, you, it pays to understand each of those people and you might pitch the story completely differently depending on the recipient. I think stereotypically about most organizations, a marketing department is usually, uh, they're always oriented towards the new. What's next? Um, legal and compliance? Probably more on the hesitation and a little bit more conservative side. So if you have an idea that requ you know, requires buy-in from both departments, um, you may not want to pitch one idea all in the same meeting with both groups. Thing about splitting up that audience and constructing different pitches. Fascinating stuff. I love science. This is this is this is great. And and now we're going to move to the manager. So I think you know the the safety part probably comes in here. I guess as well as others. So if we think about the manager responding to feedback, you know what do leaders need to do to make sure they create 
the right environment where employees feel comfortable coming to them with, with feedback? So I, I think the first thing to really acknowledge is what, what are you trying to solve for? And if you're trying to create a culture where employees routinely come to you with ideas and feedback, and these are this important information that you may not otherwise get. So think about it as you move up the hierarchy in most organizations, you, are, you move from a person who's actually on the front lines doing the work. They're making the widgets, you're interacting with suppliers, buyers, customers, you're getting feedback across all this stuff. As you get promoted, now all of a sudden you're doing the managing, you're managing the other people who are doing the work. And as a result, you have less access to that on the ground information and experiences about what needs to actually get changed. And certainly as you move further up in the organization, the less attached um, you can become. So again, there's still that dependency there. You need to know this stuff, yet it's also hard, again, to kind of hear that, some of that feedback. So how do you set up a culture that those folks not only feel comfortable coming to you routinely, but it's also worthwhile? What I mean by that is it actually leads to change that they see some success of their efforts in trying to, to vocalize their ideas. So those are the kind of the two main mechanisms that we're solving for. Get people to feel comfortable or psychologically safe and make them feel that it's worthwhile. Once we have those two things in mind, now all of a sudden we can look at different tactics and we can look at some that at least on the surface seem great, but don't actually solve those two main issues. And so they're not as effective. Um, these are things that I often call half-hearted attempts. So think about an open door policy. Um, you say you have an open door, um, you can literally leave your door open and invite uh, employees in, but it takes a level of proactivity on their part to kind of cross that threshold into your office in order to deliver that feedback. And that may not always be the most comfortable of, uh, of, of endeavors. So, um, as a result, I've never heard a manager say, I have a closed door policy. So just because you say you have an open door policy, that doesn't actually resonate in a way that's going to change how safe someone feels coming into your office. You have to do something more than that. Yeah. The other quick example is an anonymous suggestion systems or hotlines. If that's your only way to get feedback, if you send out anonymous surveys all the time, hey, I want to hear your you know, unvarnished truth about what you think about this, that, and the other, but you never follow up and have an additional conversation about that feedback that you're getting, then from the employee's point of view, the only way they can get that, give the feedback is if they are truly anonymized and no one knows who they are. And it's a reminder that they can't have a conversation face-to-face that they shouldn't feel comfortable doing it in that venue. So again, those are just a couple examples of you know, tactics that I often see managers take, yet they don't actually solve the psychological safety issue and therefore it's not quite as effective. So other things that, um, uh, some, some uh, quick tactics that I've found to be more effective. One of the things that uh, I've started talking about a lot and this comes in as a result of directly in partnership with, uh, with Microsoft. Um, I think you've had Don Klinghoffer on, uh, on your podcast before. Um, so wonderful partner there. And they've started talking about what they call the employee listening ecosystem. 
So if you think about all the different ways employees can offer feedback, certainly anonymous suggestion hotlines is one. But now you have your annual or biannual engagement survey. That's another mechanism. You have monthly, weekly, or daily pulses. Again, other types of surveys to get that, uh, get that feedback. Well, as managers, you also have face-to-face -face opportunities. Or um, like a, uh, I was working with a general manager from a call center. Uh, this is in an insurance company. Uh, he deployed what he called cookie chats. Every Friday afternoon, about three o'clock, the phones die down. He just put a plate of cookies out in the conference room and just sat there and watched everyone come in, grab a, you know, grab a cookie. He would shoot the breeze, hear their feedback from the week. And it was just a routine, very informal way of kind of getting a pulse on things. Um, there is exit surveys, internal mobility surveys, onboarding surveys around different employment life cycles. There's chat and message boards internally. So what I encourage you to do is not think about the one tactic to get feedback. Think about the ecosystem that's in place and how you're assembling all that feedback in a thoughtful and purposeful way, such that you can identify trends, identify hotspots, and then take action and be able to follow up on that uh, fairly quickly. Yeah, and I think also what we're starting to see with companies, Microsoft is a good example of this, as well as kind of active ways of, of soliciting feedback, actually looking at some, I think Microsoft calls it ambient, others call it passive ways, you know, looking at, you know, anonymized and aggregated, of course, but looking at, 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 at chat on, you know, company intranets, you know, on public forums, um, looking at, you know, email data, calendar data, not the content, obviously, but looking at, at calendars, looking, you know, looking at the traffic between people on social media, because everyone, everything's been on, effectively using tools like this, like Zoom, you know, and others on Teams, obviously at Microsoft, um, for, for the last two years. And, and that really builds up, you know, town halls, town halls have been like this. So actually analyzing some of the questions that, that, that are getting asked and some of the sentiment that's coming out of it, it can give you quite a really good, quite a really good view, isn't it? It is an explosion of data and this move in, into this hybrid format and technology and enabled collaboration. There's a lot of data that are there that are naturally captured. And with some of the tools you just mentioned, it gives us different avenues and strategies to analyze those data and generate insights that go well beyond just surveys. And so I, I think that's what you're kind of referring to is through the natural avenues of collaboration, we, we can capture sentiment, how inclusive language is that people use, and then start to track that to survey responses and ultimately operational financial sets of outcomes that people all care about. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you're looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the MyHR Future Academy. It's a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you'll see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gaps, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Now let's go back to the conversation with Ethan as he discusses the increase in the use of employee listening at companies and how to solicit feedback from employees at scale. 
on the manager side, obviously, it's not just about being open to feedback and 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 looking at a myriad of ways of getting feedback. As a manager, you you, you know you've got to give feedback as well. And you know, and I'd love to hear your thoughts around some of the things that that managers should be considering when giving sometimes candid feedback to employees where they obviously don't want to damage the relationships that they've built and they obviously don't want to damage the the comfort and the that you talked about um so so that people feel safe to actually um, give feedback to them as well you're right thus far we've mostly been talking about upward feedback so speaking up in organizations and how to organize around some of those dynamics um if you kind of look at that a little bit more broadly, that's just, um, it's a study of how to be candid at work, how to be honest. And um, one of the things I always like to say, I, I do think that if people were just a little bit more honest in general at work and even outside, like things could be a little bit more productive. And so you can take that notion of honest and, honesty and candor and then flip it and look at downward feedback. So what are leaders doing to be honest and candid with their employees and their teams in order to improve performance. And, you know, much the same as there's some tension and difficulty in relaying honest and candid feedback upward, managers and leaders also face similar types of, of challenges and tensions in telling the truth to their employees in a number of ways. Um, I do think the, the tension is different and they're balancing a couple of different things, but that tension is still there. So. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example in this context. I, I had a, uh, a former student of mine, uh, her dissertation was on how leaders can tell their employees no. So when you respond to voice, when you respond to all these ideas, you can't say yes to everything. Um, you know, if you create this culture of safety and have a thousand ideas come your way, there's no way you can implement them all. You, you have to be choosy. Um, there's only so much time and resources to do things. So how do you then say no? How do you be honest and candid about some ideas not being pushed through in a way that still keeps those employees engaged and excited about coming back again with another idea? And so what she found through a series of interviews is managers really balance kind of two different things. The first is pr providing diagnostic feedback. Um, why is this idea not going through? Why are you not performing as well as you could? Um, how are you, in the way you're interacting, creating tension within the team that is a bit dysfunctional? You know, providing that diagnostic feedback is instructive, it's informational, it, it helps a person to develop. But the second piece that you're optimizing for is, is not just cognitive and what you need to do. That second piece is motivational. How do you deliver that feedback in a way that gets people excited about doing something different? And oftentimes those two things are in tension with one another. So if you can imagine for a second, you come to me with an idea and I give you the 42 very diagnostic ways why that idea is not good. It's not terribly motivational. It's not, that doesn't necessarily give you, you know, the warm and fuzzies to come back again with another idea. So it's a balance between those. How, how, are, you, how are you delivering feedback in an honest and candid way, yet also sanitizing that message in a way that it resonates, that it keeps people engaged and excited and, and want to work for you? Yeah, really good point. 
hard being a manager, isn't it? <laughs> Not the easiest thing in the world. If we think uh, a little bit more broadly about employee voice and employee feedback, we've, we've touched on this already. As I say, one of the trends that we've really seen during the pandemic is that increase in employee listening. So you talked about, you know, companies even doing daily pulses. Microsoft is a company that's doing a daily pulse. I think it's up to two and a half thousand Microsoft employees every day. And obviously that's really helped, you know, in, inform them the various stages of the pandemic, helped shape its approach to hybrid work and, and, and days in office and, 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 and everything around that. And I think also really helped them during the, the, the sort of racial injustice challenges that, that came up in, in 2020, which actually have always been there, but really fired up, obviously, with the, with the George Floyd murder. Um, what, is, what has your research suggested that, that companies should be thinking about when trying to get feedback from employees at scale? So we've talked really about how, you know, managers can solicit, employees can give feedback to managers, managers can solicit feedback from employees. But what about at scale? And, and how has this changed, um, you know, if it has changed during the pandemic? I think it's a great question. So you're right. A lot of things we talked about thus far is is really kind of that those psychological dynamics between the manager and, and his or her employees. And when you start asking this question from a policy standpoint across a large number of people within an organization, I, I do think it starts to bring up um, different sets of dynamics and, and, and policy implications. So I think the first is going back to that notion of an ecosystem. So you can't just rely on practicing managers to informally get this feedback and relay those messages up the chain of command. So that's where deploying some of these surveys at scale can be really useful to identify some of those, those, those themes and, and, and such. Um, I also think it, it brings to question different sets of analyses than what managers may analyze on their own. As a manager, if you're trying to create that environment with one employee, you can get some feedback from that one employee and you perhaps know that one person because you've developed that relationship over a period of time. You kind of know what's on their mind and what's not. When you're starting to look at this as scale across 100,000 employees, now all of a sudden you can do different sets of analyses across employees. What are the topics that employees routinely speak up about? What are those hot button issues? But also, what are the topics that they don't? What are you missing out on? And one of the, again, kind of, at least for me, some of the surprising research that um, has been shown for about the last 10, 15 years in this is this notion of, of speaking up as a behavior that you can measure. How often do you speak up? Never to always. That is not the same as how often do you withhold an idea? And so you can have high levels of voice and also high levels of silence or high levels of withholding. And as you start to ask those questions across discrete topic areas, what we have seen is that there are pretty material differences. So let me explain. If you're going to ask someone, how often do you speak up about your task, your job, your ability to accomplish your work? Usually it's high levels of voice and medium to low levels of withholding. If there are things that prevent you from being effective at your work, people tend to vocalize that more readily. Speaking of George Floyd and issues of race and diversity. If you start to ask questions around speaking up about diversity, equity, inclusion issues at work, 
all of a sudden voice starts to come down. People don't speak up near as often and withholding also goes up. And so as you start to look across different sets of topics, your task, your ability to coordinate with others, team dynamics, your relationship with your boss, senior leadership team, the strategic direction of the organization, your compensation, DNI issues, I mean, I can go on and on and on, right? And what we found is there are topics where people feel very comfortable speaking up and there are topics that they don't. And so you can't just ask blanketly, how often do you speak up or how comfortable are you? Because that, that glums all these different topic areas together. If there are issues that you think are bubbling up, you have to be able to ask about those topics because there are different drivers or different ways for people to feel more or less comfortable about some topics that are just not relevant for others. And of course, you know, what you can do to action on that depends on getting that feedback in the first place. So, you know, to me, like coming out of this hybrid environment where we haven't had those opportunities to develop the similar types of relationships that we have in person, to me, one of my fears is we're not really having similar opportunities to hear what's actually on people's minds, what they're actually dealing with, and therefore the types of um, policies, routines, and practices that we should be devoting more resources towards. And, and before I get to the last question, I think what you've just talked about there about doing that listening at scale um, and understanding what people will speak up about and won't speak up about. This is where having a people analytics team is so important. So you can actually do that analysis. And I, your research has shown, I, I, I remember the article you co-authored with uh, Elizabeth McClure um, and Dawn Klinghoffer that actually looked at some of, you know, I think it was some analysis of Microsoft. But actually, when you provide that, that, that climate, that safe environment for people, for employees to speak up, then the companies benefit from it. So, I mean, this is, it's worth doing, isn't it? I'll take that one example and kind of broaden it out. Um, you know, I've talked for the last almost uh, 45 minutes, hour about the benefits of voice. If people speak up, it gives leaders the opportunity to take action, to launch new products and services, to improve collaboration patterns, to address problems in the work environment. Those should be good. I think also across a number of countries, the notion of a democracy and everyone having a voice is a virtue that we all hold. Um, to, be, to feel that you have been heard is a good thing. And I think in a lot of ways, this concept of voice is something that is almost universally laudable. But that's not what the data show, and that's not what we've found. Voice is only good if action is taken. So if you speak up and nothing is done, at least our research has shown that that's worse than if you were never given that opportunity in the first place. And so the role of the people analytics function in a lot of ways, in my mind, is to be thoughtful and purposeful and providing ways for the organization to action on the feedback that is given by employees. Once you collect the data, there should be a good functioning system to take those insights and do something different. And again, more, most importantly, communicate those changes back to employees so that they feel empowered and invested 
and the, in their voice in the first place. So it's, it's nuanced. Yes, that voice matters, but only if action is, is taken and, and people see those changes. Yeah, I think there's a couple of quotes that I'm going to pull out there, I think, when we, when we publish the podcast. So, Ethan, last question, and this is the one we're asking everyone on, on this series. Um, you know, what, what do you believe to be the, the sort of two to three things that HR will need to, to do to really add business value as we, as you said, hopefully come out of the pandemic in the, in the coming months? I, I'm kind of a, I'm a big believer in the, the value of slowing down and, and taking a pause. And what, what I mean by that is not just the mindfulness and wellness stuff. Yes, that, that's great. And there's a lot of work on that. But I think more than ever, coming out of the pandemic and through the pandemic, the pace of work has heightened. Everyone feels not only burnout, but busier than ever and busy doing things that just take longer. It takes longer to form relationships. It takes longer to make decisions. It takes longer to do everything, yet we still need to move at a similar pace to what we did before, which means we are all overworked and busy. If we can slow down and take a pause and be purposeful about what questions are important, what insights do we need, what actions are we prepared to take, and what resources do we need to accomplish that? When you start asking those questions and then organize sets of activities around those, it can not only slow things down, I actually think it can create a, a better experience and environment for people to work with them. I'm all for not stopping to run at 100, mile, 100 million miles an hour. I think that's, just really, <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good way to, to, to end our conversation, Ethan. I, I know that we're, we're coming up to time. Thanks so much for being a guest on on the podcast. I know that I know that this is going to be an episode that's going to resonate. I think with a lot of our listeners. Can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you, follow you on social media, and find out more about your work? Um, so the easiest thing, uh, you know, Google my name. I, uh, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not the most social person in the world. I don't do a, a ton of postings, but a lot of the, the research and findings. Um, every once in a while, I, I, I do hit up some articles, mostly on LinkedIn, sometimes on Twitter. Uh, other than that, uh, most of my work in the public sphere is published in uh, Harvard Business Review, Sloan Management Review, and then a couple pieces in, in the Times and, and, and some other places. Um, you can certainly look up uh, contact info on uh, University of Texas and certainly looking not only for collaborations in my own sphere, but we have a number of faculty within our, our department that are, are doing work in, in, in similar areas and would be excited for uh, uh, continued partnerships there. Brilliant. And Ethan, I'm hoping that we'll see each other again in person at some point, yes. probably at a conference somewhere in the US, in the, hopefully in the not too distant future. So thanks very much for being a guest on the show, Ethan. Take care. Thank you, David. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show with five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter by going to myhrfuture.com. We'll be back next week for episode two of series 22, where I'll be joined by Lisa Chang, Chief People Officer at the Coca-Cola Company. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and take care.